and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Kara Golden has quite an impressive, extensive resume and bio, but rather than give you all of her bio and information, I think she covers a lot in her journey in this conversation. I'm just going to introduce her to you. She's the founder and CEO of Hint. You probably are familiar with Hint. They're best known for their award-winning water, which is really a leading unsweetened flavor water category. She's been featured in magazines, won awards. She's an active speaker, and she's got a fantastic book, which we cover in today's conversation as well. And she's a podcaster, so she loves to learn. I think that's really what you're going to find is she's super curious, always looking to grow, interested in disrupting, interested in new products and new innovations. And she's a, a founder at heart. She really is somebody who loves ideas and loves to iterate and create and disrupt. And lastly, she cares deeply about making an impact and making a difference on the world. Today's conversation, you're going to hear her authentic perspective on 
career, on life, on family, all of that is going to come out in today's conversation. And there were times where I asked her difficult, challenging questions. And what I appreciated appreciated deeply about Kara is she didn't answer them just with the textbook answer. She actually thought about it and she was authentic and genuine in her answers. And I hope that comes across to you as well. So here is Kara Golden. Kara, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, we just briefly chatted. I'm sure we could chat for hours. I strangely have been in your world sort of from the outside looking in, in a number of ways. We probably won't get into it in this podcast, but I love what you've done with Hint, not just with water, but in a variety of ways. And hopefully we'll we'll cover some of those brands that you've built. And then even more than that, just the inspiring work you do as a speaker, as a writer, your book was spectacular. Highly recommend people read it. It's an easy read. I, I think that's a compliment. Uh, it's definitely a compliment coming from me. Uh, I flew through it in in, a, in like a couple of days. So uh, love the book, recommend the book. But where I thought we'd start is a little bit in your childhood, just around gymnastics. Uh, you did gymnastics in the book you talk about breaking toes and constantly being on crutches. And I call gymnastics a pain sport. So I think there are sports that people do cross country, gymnastics, wrestling, tennis, these sports that are physically demanding on the body and then mentally, emotionally tricky and difficult because the spotlight's on you. And uh, if you screw up, it's on you. So I'm curious, given your background in gymnastics as a kid and then your story as an entrepreneur, it seemed like there was some grit and some tenacity and some hustle and some relentlessness in you. So I was curious how the gymnastics helped shape how you showed up as an entrepreneur. Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, uh, even taking it a a step back. I mean, I don't think I, of course, loved gymnastics, right? But I didn't know that I would probably be doing gymnastics as much as I was doing it. But my my parents had a rule, and particularly my dad had a rule. He was a sports fanatic and not only uh, loved sports, but also um, coached a lot. Uh, not gymnastics, but he coached baseball, football. Like there was just constant sports going on in our house. So I was the last of five kids. And uh, basically my dad had this rule that you had to always be doing sports. And so it was, um, you know, pick a sport, any sport and go do it. And so, you know, sometimes we had to, like I was during certain times when I wasn't doing gymnastics, I'd be doing cheerleading. Like I'd have to negotiate, okay, cheerleading's kind of a sport. Like, you know, we're okay, fine. You know, so, so, you had to define it. You had to um, actually uh, kind of negotiate it, sell it right as a sport. Um, but there were other times when, um, you know, maybe I couldn't find exactly what I wanted to be doing and I'd have to do a sport that I wasn't very good at. And uh, so like softball for is one that I talk about a lot where um, I learned to actually be a part of a team and a team that was better than me. I was a terrible, terrible softball player. Like I it, like hand-eye coordination, for example, for me was like not so great, but I also learned to um, admire people who were better at, than I was at certain things, um, knowing that I was good at other things like gymnastics and running and things that I had, um, you know, excelled in. And so I think sports taught me a lot um, 
that maybe going into it, I didn't think that I would be learning um, and from there, uh, from those experiences. But I think that, um, you know, definitely the the key thing of um, getting back up again. Um, you know, I think one of the things, too, that I think back on my time doing gymnastics, when I would have a really bad um you know, practice um, or a meet. I remember my mom waiting outside for me. Like I'd be done at five o'clock and she'd be waiting and waiting and waiting. And, and like, I wouldn't leave until I made the visual better for myself, right? Like if I really screwed something up, I wouldn't just go home for the day and go grab dinner. And I remember she just getting so irritated with me because I'm like, no, I'm not going to leave. There was no Uber or Yelp or uh, Lyft at that time, right? There was there was just wait for your mom to come pick you up. And um, there weren't even many taxis around and I didn't drive. So it was like a time when, um, you know, looking back, I think that being able to... Um, have the resilience and the tenacity and also the um the know-how that I could actually turn things around and I could change the visual and I could eventually do it if I just set my mind to it and focused. Yeah, tenacity as you were describing yourself, that was the word that I actually wrote down on my piece of paper next to me. But your story and your experience, the word that I found popping up most often in your book was curiosity. And mm -hmm. I was thinking about this because there are plenty of gymnasts who are not necessarily curious. They learn exactly what they're supposed to do and they train it and they do it over and over and over again. Discipline, tenacity, relentlessness, like the ability to execute over and over again. And the monotony of that is a part of that sport. But curiosity for you, creativity, I think certainly that can exist in elements of running and, and gymnastics, but I think of you know, sports like soccer, for example, or basketball, where there's more of that mm -hmm. curiosity for you. Where did you develop that? Where did you cultivate your curiosity? So uh, probably not the answer that you would expect me to say necessarily. But I think, again, going back to being the last of five kids, um, but also having parents that were a little bit older, maybe not old um, in in terms of uh, today's uh, analysis of, of parents, but my parents were 40 when they had me, which, you know, was older. I had the oldest parents on the block. And so my parents were constantly saying to me, um, you need to figure it out. And it's not like my parents were bad parents or bad people. I think that, you know, they were tired. They were, they were older, right? I had brothers and sisters that were, um, you know, doing other things. They were significantly older. They were getting in trouble. Um, and so looking back on my parents too, I think they gave me this, um, th they gave me the nudge to go and figure things out and go and be creative, which, you know, again, when you're, um, when, when you're, trying to figure things out at times it's frustrating, but they certainly were not dictating like, here's what you need to do. Instead, they were, um, you know, giving me wiggle room. They were also telling me, 
like don't get in trouble uh you know be home before certain times i definitely had rules i wasn't a total latchkey kid but i um but they definitely wanted me to go and figure out how do i make something happen and so i think that that you know in hindsight like allowed me to sort of be who i am today too where i'm not afraid to um ask why i'm not afraid to network with other people asking them uh, how to figure things out. I was also the kid on the block. Um, I, I grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, I was also the kid on the block that uh, rode my bike a lot around the, uh, you know, around the neighborhood and I would meet people. I was always like the, the uh, person who would know that there was a new family moving into the neighborhood. And selfishly, I wanted to understand like who was moving into the neighborhood because during the summer we would um, play like chase or tag or hide and seek. And I'd want to know like if there were going to be great people that were going to be able to be on our team. Right. So I like wanted to know who, who it was, right. That was going to be able to be there so that I could grab them in time to, to be on the team. So I was very social, very outgoing because I realized that, that was a way to actually um, meet people, but also learn new things. And not only people with kids, but also I would um, enlist their parents. Like I, I would find out um, who they were. I would come home and tell my parents like, oh yeah, he works at so-and-so down the block. He's this, he's this. And you know, he likes baseball and uh, we should invite him over for dinner. Like my parents are like, no, like, you know, <laughs> this is, you know, you're, you're inviting everybody. No, I didn't invite them, but we should, we should go and do this. So I was always like the, the networker from a very early age. And you're the mother of four kids. What did you replicate from your childhood and what did you reject? I'm going to say reject. It, it's a strong word, but you mentioned your dad saying, hey, you're going to play a sport. And then you mentioned your parents really giving you independence. Were there parts of your childhood that you said, yeah, I want to give that to my kids? And were there parts where you said, hey, I think maybe we'll do it a little differently? I think my kids would say uh they're they're now older i have my youngest is a senior in high school and um and then a couple in college one just graduated from college and another one that just graduated from getting her masters i think she would say that the you need to figure it out um mentality i think is really um what i probably took from my childhood i think that's how i manage um teams as well that you know like i think don't be afraid to make mistakes. Just don't make really giant ones that are going to um, get you uh, killed, um, bankrupt, right? <laughs> like lots of, I think that philosophy has always um, kind of been instilled in me um, as, as a kid. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, questions were never uh, viewed as a uh, no-no. Uh, growing up, right? Like it was like, just ask people a lot of questions because you're going to, that's going to satisfy your curiosity. You're going to learn a lot um, from people and it makes days much more interesting. So I think I've definitely instilled that um, in my kids as well. Uh, what haven't I 
I don't know what I haven't like. I mean, that's a really good question. I don't know that I've, um, you know, instilled anything differently. I, I, I would say that there's not necessarily a, um, a mandate for being in sports, but I think my kids have always done some kind of sport, um, you know, going on like throughout the years. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I don't know if there's anything in particular that they, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. I had my dad on the podcast and yeah. my brothers listened to it afterwards. And my perception of my parents was different than my brother's perception. And you even said my oldest daughter would say X. And I bet if we went through the other three, maybe there would be a little bit different perspective on it. The thing that came up in in my sort of thoughts on this was my parents did a really good job of instilling confidence in the three of us. And I'm not sure they always instilled curiosity in us. And hmm. so like we were very comfortable sharing our opinion and sharing our convictions and our passions. And it wasn't like a yes, sir, no ma'am household. So we were able to share, but I'm not sure we always were taught to ask great questions and to be uber curious. And for you, just to bring it back to you, you, as I'm researching you, there's this amazing blend of curiosity and conviction that hmm. comes out throughout your journey where you have the curiosity to solve problems and to figure things out and to ask people for advice or ask people for something. But then when you believe in something, you're willing to like bet the house on it and mm -hmm. go for it, like you said, and not be afraid. How do you blend curiosity and conviction uh, in business and in life? So I think that well, again, going going back. So my my dad, I always talk about this in the book. I my dad was a uh, he never called himself an entrepreneur, but I I call him a frustrated entrepreneur, even though he wasn't a um, you know traditional entrepreneur. He developed uh, products inside of a large company, which is significantly different than starting a company um, from scratch, but there are many things that um, that are similar um, in in the situation. And so I think thinking back about hearing his stories about his frustrations in starting a company, I think it would be very difficult for any of his children. In fact, none of his five children, actually went to work for a large company because my dad had so many frustrations uh, with, with with working for a large company. Now, you could argue that I built a large company, but I also was able to uh, do it in a way where the culture um, was very much how I wanted it to be. I guess. And you worked, yeah. I mean, AOL, I'm in Washington, DC. Yeah. I mean, we know AOL and you talk about Sterling, Virginia in the book. I know where Sterling, Virginia is. I yeah. know the Dulles toll road, but you were in big ecosystems, big CNN time. I mean, you were in these, these big ecosystems. It's something that I noticed with my clients a lot is there are people that work in corporate worlds that you know, they, they are entrepreneurs, they are doing 
amazing things inside of those corporate organizations. Do you think you would have been um, your career? You there was a pathway there that would have continued in that world, or do you think you were destined to start your own thing at some point? You know, I think it's interesting when you're starting something and there is a, uh, there's, there's a growth thing. There's a, a, there's a hockey stick, right. In a perfect world that goes on for, um, founders or founding teams, right. That is, it's like this adrenaline that goes on that, um, that you love. And when you start getting into larger size companies, um, you know, whether, you look at it from the standpoint of people or revenues or whatever, um, it just changes. And, you know, and then it coupled with if you're a public company, right, that that totally changes as well, because you're looking at profitability, you're looking at, you know, how do you balance the two of those things versus growth opportunities. And um, so anyway, I think that there is a difference. And I think that many people who really love the growth stage have a very hard time um, kind of sitting, not sitting, but sort of accepting, you know, the the rails, right, that, that exist inside of these companies. And so oftentimes you'll see these companies that get into that phase, these larger phases, they'll put those people that are growth people into innovation jobs or new product development areas. Um, but I think that the satisfaction uh, is is really difficult, right? And because it's it's they're still under the confines of being inside of a large company and have having sort of ridden the roller coaster of knowing what it used to be like versus what it is today and really what's needed for the company is just is just different. Right. And so I think that having seen that experience for my dad, um, he hadn't been in the early stage of a company as I did. Um, but definitely, you know, was under the confines of what a company, you know, really wanted that wanted them to, to, or him to adhere to, I think was, was really key. And again, when you're a kid, you don't really know what you're learning. Right. You just think like, oh, the big bad company, you know, is treating my dad poorly or not really going along. One of the things that I, uh, you know, he passed away a decade ago. But one of the things I think about a lot is he was one of the first people. Um, and I know this because an advertising agency actually reached out to me um, shortly after he passed away. He, they were looking for him. Um, because uh, the product that he had launched, Healthy Choice, he had put storytelling on the back of the package. Now, if you think back to when you were a kid, like storytelling was a no-no, right? Like that was not something that you would do because it made you seem too small, like too mom and pop. Um, a product like, you know, Hint or Annie's, um, that or honest tea, anything that has like a strike, like that just wouldn't fly. And so the amount of arguments that he would have internally 
uh, with the company about like why it's important to share where the fish came from. Where was the shrimp sourced from? What did the fishermen go through every day um, in order to get the consumer the products that they wanted? He fundamentally saw like this vision and, you know, what the consumer, he was ahead of what, where most people saw yet, you know, they crushed all of his storytelling that he really wanted to do. And his background was actually journalism. Like he was a storyteller and it's fascinating to think. um, And again, like when an advertising agency reached out to me, they had said that uh, healthy choice actually wanted to put some stories um, on the packaging. I'm like, wait, what? This is, this is crazy. I mean, you know, 45 years later, they want to bring back storytelling into their packaging. I don't know if they ultimately ended up doing it, but, you know, that was not, that was something that the larger company just really believed was the right way. And, and again, like, I think that that's something that, um, that I really saw as kind of a, you know, probably don't want to work for a large company, whether or not that that was a, large company thing or a sign of the times or whatever it was, I viewed it as large company thing, not going to do that. Is there a stage of the building that you most enjoy that makes you feel alive? So I would say it's all interesting to me, right? It's all got its hard stages. I'm fortunate to be able to have seen uh, a lot of, um, different stages. So hint today is, you know, a quarter of a billion dollar net company, um, in sales, um, valuation, uh, much larger, but I had seen AOL America online at, you know, I think I was employee a hundred when I came in there. So I'd seen it not at zero, um, but I had seen it, um, actually be the underdog in online services. Um, Steve Case probably wouldn't want to hear this, but they definitely were not number one. Prodigy and CompuServe, if you remember those brands, they were, um, you know, kind of ahead of where he ultimately was and he surpassed those. So being able to see a company in the earlier stages, I think is a lot of fun, but it's also hard, right? It's like, it's, I love being an underdog yet i've never been a part of like a turnaround situation if that makes sense so i think it's um i would have to say that i don't mind being at zero and creating as long as i'm passionate about it i've only done that once uh with the company that i developed but earlier stage and being able to scale it um i think is is uh i love you mentioned the idea of a walk-on in your book, and I thought that was such a cool concept as well. You know, the walk-on who doesn't have the scholarship and and they're they're making it happen, um, or an underdog. And I think about those words, underdog, walk-on, and I've asked uh, an NBA general manager uh, who's in a market that's an underdog market, you know, do you look to hire underdogs? And he said, absolutely. And I said, well, if you had the opportunity to go to New York City tomorrow and be the New York Knicks general manager, would you take it? He said, absolutely not. He's like, I like being the underdog. 
Then I worked with the major league soccer team and I asked the head coach, I go, do you like underdogs? He goes, absolutely not. He goes, give me the superstar and, and let's run with it. When you're hiring people and you're looking for people, are you looking for underdogs? Are you looking for walk-ons? Are you looking for people that have that background? Or are you looking for the the superstar who has maybe a, a more polished resume and and they're maybe more successful? Is there any thought that goes into who you're who you're bringing on? You know, great question. I think I definitely am open to underdogs, but what I tend to gravitate towards is people who own their story. So I am more likely to hire people who have made mistakes that they can own. And I am more likely in a group of people um, looking to hire somebody, be the one who can um, accept the fact that somebody has been fired, failed, as long as they can own it. Because they've actually been through something that hurt. And they don't want to go there again. Right? And so I've always said to my team, uh, you know, as long as they're not a felon. Right? I mean, there, there are definitely things that maybe uh, I wouldn't be able to kind of get past. But the the fact that somebody, um, you know, told their boss off and then he fired me, like, they're probably not going to do that again, right? I'm just thinking about this as an example. Or we had one person uh, who joined Hint and who was one of our best employees who... Um, had actually uh, shared with us that he didn't show up for work one day and then he was fired. And we were like, why didn't you show up for work? He's like in the middle of an interview. I, I have a very, um, you know, back and forth conversational um, kind of, in, I think we were even walking down the street and he said, well, I, I had to go to rehab. And I was like, wow. And I said, did you, did you tell your boss? And he said, no, I was too embarrassed to tell my boss. And, and then I just never followed up with him again afterwards. And I was like, well, maybe, maybe you should, like, maybe you should just tell him like later on and, you know, just don't want my job back, whatever. And maybe he would actually like, be a reference for you or whatever. And he's like, that's a great idea. And he did. And he followed up with me to say, thank you for actually telling me to do that. Um, and we ended up hiring him later, you know, later on, uh, a few weeks later on. And anyway, it was really interesting because I think there were a lot of people on the team saying like, okay, this, I didn't show up for work and, you know, maybe he's uh, like he's now shown us that he's uh, an addict and he's, um, you know, been in and he's told us he's been in and out. I'm like, that's OK. Right. Like the fact that he can actually own something like that is 
I think it's pretty interesting. I mean, maybe he's not going to be managing people. Um, maybe he is. I don't know. But we should give this guy a shot. So long-winded way of saying um, maybe he's an underdog, but maybe he's a person. I view him more as somebody who can own their mistakes because there's a lot of people in the world that try and cover up their mistakes, have made a mistake, try and they try and defend it. They blame others. Um, and I think that the people that can actually own their mistakes and tell you why they did what they did and like, and ultimately not try and blame others for it are the ones that you actually want on your team. Is there a mistake that you've made that you own that you've learned a lot from? I've learned a lot from, uh, question god your questions are awesome um mistake you know business or in life i guess is the is the you know the biggest question i think one of the ones that i think about a lot is God, that's a, that's a great, it's a great question, actually. I'm trying to think how to frame um, some of this. I think that, uh, sorry, I'm like just trying I'll, to think. I'll go what, first because yeah, let me, for, for me, you wrote a book. Uh, I wrote a book. The biggest fear I have of writing a book is that it's forever. And it's easy to be taken out of context over time. And even in your book, you talk about the pandemic. And I think there's even a little blurb at the beginning that says, Hey, we're deciding like, what will we talk about during this time period? And in my book, I talk about Kanye West and I knew when we were using Kanye West as an example that he had already been a lightning rod. He'd already been someone who is highly controversial and I went back and forth with the editor about how we would frame Kanye West to talk about a quality of Kanye West that we were sort of acknowledging as positive. Mm -hmm. And we went back and forth and the wording went from harsh to judgmental to just honest. And I think we gave the honest example. But the mistake, in my opinion, is that sometimes things are just better left out. And sometimes I, the message could have gone across without him as the example. And I think he, we knew he was a lightning rod and we knew that there was possible uh, stuff down the road that he could say. And the mistake I made was to go with him when we had other alternatives and options that could have gotten the same message across. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes I have a tendency to say F it, like we're just going to go with that because that's the truth without thinking about how I can best get my message across to people. And mm -hmm. I think like that is something I've worked on to try to say, hey, it doesn't have to be 
that person or that thing. Like the message is what's most important. And I'm not great at thinking about the audience when I deliver a message. And I usually am just thinking about myself. What would I want to hear? What would I be interested in? And your book is a really good example of listening to consumers and taking time and, and doing testing. And I think sometimes that's something that I need to continue to work on is, hey, go test it. Go get multiple opinions. It doesn't have to just be your experience. The flip side of that is by focusing on what I'm interested in, I don't get stuck. I don't get paralyzed. I go, I act, I I do. Um, so I can go fast, but sometimes it's not with the intention or the thoughtfulness that I need to have. And so the book was really a challenge in that. Um, and I think I'll continue to regret things in the book as I age and as the book ages because the world will evolve and change. And so kind of ready for that. Uh, but it's still scary and it sucks and, uh, it's frustrating. Uh, is there anything in the book that you look back on and you're, and you're not, have you got to that point where you're like, yeah, you know, there's something in there that someone gave me feedback on that I can understand their perspective. And maybe I could have been, could have worded it differently. Yeah, not really in the book, but here's what I would say. I think that I, if I had one fault, um, and which I probably have many more, but if I have one fault, it's that I don't always trust my gut, right? On people. I want to give people a shot going back to my story. But when you see, um, when somebody shows you their true colors, right? Uh, I'm now a very big believer to, uh, to recognize that right and which is different than somebody owning right that if somebody actually um tries to undermine uh you or shows you that they're not really um doing work and doesn't own it right like that's where it goes back to so i'm i'm more than likely in the past looking at okay there's um i've got 20 other things that I need to be focusing on. But this one thing is so glaring. Do I focus on it right now? And I think that I now look at opportunities like that as gifts. If you see something that's wrong, right, that you should be um, like removing from your team or um, or you know, it, it applies to lots of different things. Maybe it's a partner um, that you have. Um, but let's let's just say let's look at it from a team standpoint, because you've got a lot of uh, executives or managers that are listening to this. You see somebody that is, you know, not performing, not what I've learned is that that actually spills over into the rest of the group. Right. When they act, when you see something that's wrong and your gut, your judgment says, okay, there's definitely an issue here, but I've got 20 other issues that I've got to deal with. The rest of the team is going to see that as well. And it multiplies very, very fast. And I think that that is something that, uh, that I've gotten better at. I'm not great at it yet. But I really, really believe when you're given a gift like um, to actually be able to see something, trust your gut and pay attention and pay extra attention, even if you have 20 other issues that you're dealing with, because 
this one, especially if you can solve it pretty quickly, um, you know, solve it and versus actually saying, eh, it's okay. It's no big deal. Like I'll go deal with that later because it'll multiply very fast if you're actually seeing it in a way that, um, that is a problem. I think people often start with their head, their gut or their heart. And, um, that's like their primary place where they begin. And for me, it's my heart. So Mm -hmm. I was talking to my wife about this last night and my parents about it two nights ago where we were talking about something and I was like, Oh, like, it's not worth breaking the relationship. Like, Mm -hmm. like just the people are too valuable. And they're like, no, like we need to just get into details and make sure that we're all on the same page on the agreement. Like it was a very heady conversation and I wasn't all that interested in the head because I was just focused on the heart. And what I've learned is like, sometimes my heart gets in the way of the gut and the head needing to show up. And I think all of us tend to start in one place. And what I've found is if I start with my heart, that's fine, but I need to also check in with my gut and my head to see, all right, well, what actually is the right thing to do? Totally. Yeah, no, I think that that is, uh, that is absolutely critical. And it's, uh, I would say I'm a heart person first as well. Um, but, but I think it's, uh, I think it's, sometimes it's easier said than done, um, to like pay attention to your gut, um, when you're reading somebody, cause you think that people will change right over, over time. And like, it, it depends. I mean, often people like won't change cause it's not a problem for them right? It's not affecting them as much. And so I think that that's like a really, really key issue. You talked about change a lot in the book. You talk about this idea of growing and learning and and constantly evolving. There's even an interaction where you actually were quite blunt with an employee where you say, Hey, like you're not growing, you're bored is the word. Like it's, you know, and the person's like, you know, you're right. Uh, And this idea of, we need to find a replacement for you. There's something that I'm so drawn to when it comes to you, which is around that word complacency. And I'll tell a quick story that will resonate with you, and then we'll bring it back to you, which is uh, over my left shoulder, which people can't see because we're only sharing the audio, there's a picture of me with the University High School of San Francisco basketball team. And Kara is probably familiar with University High School of San Francisco. She lived near there when she was in San Francisco, but they're a prestigious you know, San Francisco private school. And I had an internship with them uh, in 2011 when I was in grad school for sports psychology. And I walk into the gym and they had just had a great year the year before they went to like the state semifinals, which was a big deal for them. And they were wearing these t-shirts that said satisfaction is the enemy of success. Hmm. And I saw those shirts. And at the time I was learning about positive psychology and the power of fulfillment and self-satisfaction. And if you have fulfillment and self-satisfaction, that's a great link to happiness. And so I was like, wait a second and studying my research and my notes wait, that doesn't resonate with me. And the coach is a brilliant coach. His name's Randy Besselow, uh, one of the best sports coaches I've ever been around, uh, no matter what level. Like he's a brilliant, brilliant basketball coach. I actually talk about him in my book. And we had conversations about it. And I, I understand what his perspective was, which is I don't want our guys to not be hungry with you know what we did last year. Okay, it's in the past. Don't be complacent. But as I've thought more about it, I think our society gets satisfaction and complacency mixed up. I think we get contentment and complacency mixed up. Um, I think what he meant to say is don't be complacent. We still have room to grow, learn, Mm -hmm. get better, improve. 
And so for you, there's this journey that you seemingly are constantly on to grow, to learn. You've got your own podcast where you're learning from people. Um, you've spent a lot of time in growth and curiosity, but I'm curious for you, what do you do to stop and smell the roses and feel a sense of satisfaction and feel a sense of contentment while not diminishing your your lack of complacency? How do you have contentment while still wanting to be driven to go for it and, and go for more? Well, I think for me, um, it's about learning. Right. And and I think like my whole reason for starting my podcast years ago was I felt like I knew a, I knew a bunch of great founders and CEOs from different industries. I'd been in different industries and uh, I felt like some of the stories that we would talk about over breakfast or, you know, just pain points. I'm also a part of a group called YPO. Like I would, you know, hear these stories where I would feel like they weren't just about stories, like misery is company kind of stories, but also there's just so many learnings in there. And so when I started my podcast, I guess it was like six years ago now, it was, um, I just decided to just start recording these because I felt like if I could actually give other people some of these learnings, um, you know, whether they were a CEO or whether they knew these people or not, it didn't really matter because they could learn a lot. Selfishly, I felt like I was actually continuing to learn like, and, and that for me has always been really key, right? Maybe going back to my example of, you know, being on the softball team and not being that great. I always had a good time, right? I was like, it wasn't that I wasn't frustrated at points along the way, but I was frustrated when I was trying to achieve something, when I was trying to build something and trying to figure out, you know, as I always talk about, uh, entrepreneurship is trying to solve the the puzzle, right? Trying to build the puzzle and you don't have the picture on the box. Like that, that aspect has always really fascinated me. And so when I meet with a number of people, network with people or have them on my podcast, I feel like they're telling their story and they're sharing their lessons, but they're also, uh, you know, engaging me um, in their story. And for me, stories have always been so powerful because you can learn and you can take things away um, that are that are key. You talked about my book. I mean, one of the frustrations that I had in in writing my book with uh, with a number of different people who were uh, that I was pitching the book to publishers that I was pitching the book to, because again, I had never written a book, didn't know much about the industry. So that was a whole learning, but um, many of them wanted me to do a book that was, here are the lessons that you're supposed to learn. And I was like, Oh, like that's the worst for me. Like when somebody says to me, you know, you're supposed to learn this lesson out of this. I would just like, I'd fall asleep, right? Like I was just like, who are they to tell me what lessons I should be learning? I mean, isn't it much more interesting to actually um, listen and think and and 
look back on my own experiences and see like what lessons were really learned. I mean, and I think that that's the key thing that I get out of doing what I do uh, today. And and I guess that's tied to complacency or not wanting to stay complacent. But I think it really goes back to learning and and being able to, you know, help me grow as well. You mentioned softball and you mentioned YPO and those that are unfamiliar with YPO, it's Young Presidents Organization. Uh, we've actually had people on here talk about YPO, the CEO of YPO. Uh, my dad was in YPO. My older brother is in YPO. I probably work with eight YPO people right now. So I'm familiar with forums and how they operate. And it's interesting when you talk about softball and YPO, I get the sense that those are spaces that are highly collaborative uh, rather than than necessarily always competitive. And um, as you told your story, there's uh, a comparison between CNN and Time and the culture that existed in both those organizations where you felt like Time was very supportive of you, collaborative, helpful. They they wanted to help each other, whereas CN, CNN was very competitive. Hey, go get your sales, go compete, go, go win. Um, as you're building a company, as you're building an organization, I'm curious, how can you have both collaboration and competition? Because I think both are are very important for organizations to thrive. Yeah, well, I think in anyone's journey, you take your own experiences. And, you know, the beauty of being able to start your own company is that you get to kind of cherry pick the good and the bad, right, from from both of those. So I don't think it's it's like a, you know, either or that you're going to build the exact there were goods and bads of of both time and CNN. And then I went to work for a little startup uh, that was um, that was, you know, five guys in a in, a, in an office. So very, very significantly different than both of those other experiences that I had. But I think um, nothing's ever going to be exactly the same, right? In, in any one of these experiences. But, you know, in the case of CNN, um, I think that there were a lot of things that were, it was very competitive. It was very, um, you know, there were aspects that were very cutthroat, like all of these things. But on the flip side of that, that's where I learned about uh, the, the advantages of having a um, kind of a soul around the company, a founder uh, led company. We always knew when Ted Turner was coming off the elevator, right? Like you could hear him. You could, um, there was a inquisitiveness, um, around the halls. There was a, uh, what are we going to do now mentality where people want to, uh, you know, grow and win and, and an excitement. Um, and, you know, again, like I, I'm sure when Time Magazine first started, it was there too. But, you know, as companies age, that's the problem, right? With large companies is that they continue to do the same thing over and over again, like Groundhog Day, and eventually they die, right? Like most of the time, right? And And so what I learned, I think, about my different experiences were was watching kind of an iconic brand but also uh if you're drinking your own kool-aid so to speak um 
as the world is changing and new technologies are coming on and and uh, different ways of thinking is do you change too or do you stay exactly where you are versus this other end of the spectrum in media that was coming up, the underdog um, that was really driving um, change in, in news, but also in cable. And, you know, when I was at CNN, it was just 40% of households in the U.S. had access to cable. So it was really the early days. Um, and so being able to, you know, be a part of something I that was, I wasn't there at the, at zero, but being able to see somebody like we didn't know whether or not uh, CNN was going to be able to make it or not. Um, but when the Gulf War rolled around and um, somebody found out that their country was at war through the company that you're working at, you start to see like just one little shift can actually change. So what is that shift? And I think that's what you start to think about when you start your own company. Like, what are those shifts? Um, and, you know, very clearly in starting my own company, I I can think about those shifts. I, I know um, in the uh, now 18 years, what actually shifted that company. And like, what was it that actually helped it to grow? And I think that, you know, again, looking back um, on uh, on business, you can't necessarily say that when you're not in a founder-led company. And also how you shifted the industry and how beverage is consumed today beyond Hint and how it'll continue to evolve beyond Hint. You, you gave a story of Ted Turner coming in and the presence that he had and the inquisitiveness was the word you used. Well, we'll start winding down here. And, and I just want to close with this idea of when you walk through the, the halls of Hint, what do you hope they're saying about you? Uh, maybe under their breath or maybe, you know, behind closed doors. When you walk through, uh, what are you, what are you hoping your reputation is, so to speak, uh, throughout the company? Well, I think anytime you start something, I don't think any founder starts something thinking that they, you know, want to, uh, that, that this is their legacy, right? That this is something that they, you know, want to see stick. I don't think you have that until later. You start with a belief. You start with an idea, a problem. Um, that you see that you have a solve for, whether it's a product or a service or whatever it is. But as time goes on, I think that, you know, when you you engage consumers and you start to see um, how a product like Hint has helped people, how it's, um, it's uh, changed people's lives, right? You You hope that, there is a legacy that has been planted there that you started. Um, I feel like in addition to that, and maybe part of the reason why I also mentor and do other things, including my podcast, is that I feel like 
the more people can understand that ideas, sometimes they start in your kitchen, sometimes they start in your garage or your dorm room or whatever it is, they start somewhere. And oftentimes we forget or we don't know the backstories and of of where something started. Yet, if we understand that it was basically nothing, that it was the impossible, that it was the underdogs that actually come up with these ideas that change people's lives, that end up to be, um, you know, large public companies, all of these stories are what gives us uh, tenacity, um, right. The, the resilience that we need, um, maybe creativity and ideas. Um, and I think that that's really important. So I hope people would say, uh, you know, that you started something a, that changed my life, whether that's employees or whether it's consumers, but also something that just, makes them better in some way, whether it's the story of actually the build of Hint or, um, or again, a product that actually helps them enjoy life and have a, he a healthy and happier life. Well, my first job out of college was selling condos and they had free soda. And so <laughs> I found myself not drinking as many as you did. In her book, she talks about drinking like nine or 12 Diet Cokes a day. Um, but I would drink like one or two and similar to you, I think I woke up, it was actually like a new year's deal. People that say, Oh, new year's resolutions are terrible. Well, I stopped, I stopped drinking Coca-Cola because of a new year's resolution. Uh, and I think having alternatives like hint have made it much, much easier for me to do so and live a healthier life. So uh, I want to thank you for that. And also the word that you didn't say, but you basically said was inspiration. And I think we all need inspiration. And so the work that you're doing with your podcast, with your book uh, on LinkedIn, I mean, you're very active in a variety of ways, uh, is inspiring to me. And I'm sure it's inspiring to a lot of other people. So thank you for that. If people want to be inspired and learn more about what you're up to, I know you're on Twitter. I know you're on Instagram. I know you're active on LinkedIn. Where's the best place for them to do that? To follow you to follow along. yeah kara golden on all platforms and uh and uh my book is undaunted again um so i'd love it if uh you let me know what you think well i loved it i'm on twitter at brian levinson and linkedin's the other place at brian levinson and you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast i sent kara a note and I said, you know, I'm having all these people on my podcast and I'm researching for them. It was like Chris Voss, Kate Luzio, uh, Laura Goldner, uh, uh, Laura, Laura Gassner-Odding. And I was like, I keep coming back to your podcast when I'm researching these people. So I need to have you on the podcast. So I appreciate you saying yes. And thank you for all that you continue to do. And looking forward to continuing to follow your journey through all of those social media platforms as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Selfishly, I felt like I was actually continuing to learn. Like, and, and that for me has always been really key, right? Maybe going back to my example of, you know, being on the softball team and not being that great. I always had a good time. Right. I was like, it wasn't that I wasn't frustrated at points along the way, 
but I was frustrated when I was trying to achieve something, when I was trying to build something and trying to figure out, you know, as I always talk about uh, entrepreneurship as trying to solve the, the puzzle, right? Trying to build the puzzle and you don't have the picture on the box. Like that, that aspect has always really fascinated me. And 